A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 206 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends as well as canon, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division of podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes as well as Stitcher and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the Defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Herleman, and with me like a life cycle that comes around yearly, the EU guru himself, the count of our two continuities, Mr. Nathan B. Butler! Hey everybody, uh, yeah, that, it's the yearly cycle that he's talking about, he's not talking about a monthly cycle, that's a different thing. Yeah. Speaking of those yearly cycles, happy birthday to you, my man, on this fine recording day. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. 37 years old, which brings me three years closer to the next birthday with a bunch of like black balloons and, and stuff like that, apparently. <laughs> um, but it's been it's been good. We um, well, sort of. I mean, I spent the beginning of my birthday sitting around at a car dealership having them fix what's going on with my wife's car because the brake lights just magically stopped working uh, both at the same time. Turns out it's a brake switch thing. So that was fun. You know, a couple hundred bucks and sitting on my butt all morning. But Balancing that, of course, recently, um, because this was the birthday month, my wife and I decided that, yes, we're going to allow some splurging. So we've been doing the PlayStation VR thing recently, which uh, she even liked. And to get her to like a video game these days, because she hates the analog sticks, um, is pretty surprising. So, uh, yeah, it's been been a fun and surreal experience here at the Butler household the last few days. Nice, nice. Well played, well played. See, I, we're doing the haunted house. Got that in full swing. Uh, my my daughter's doing it with me, and I may have my wife coming out next weekend. It's uh, been pretty cool. Nice. We had had people defecate on themselves already, which is always uh, points in the haunted house world. <laughs> I'm like, what, what? And I heard like a like a, a a moaning sound. I think in the background. I think that those, that may have been the the brakes on a truck. Yeah, dump but it trucks sounded out like front. a ghost. It sounded like a ghost though, so it was perfectly <laughs> appropriate. Yeah, there's that's what I'm actually looking forward to is the is the is the the scare stuff with uh, the VR stuff that we're doing right now because there's a couple of scary games that have popped up. The, so far, the one that everybody's like, man, it's it'll freak you out and make you motion sick at the same time. So far, hasn't been freaky, but there's a, a demo for Resident Evil 7. And there's a point at which this crazy zombie-ish lady who just killed your friend with a knife basically comes up over the back of your chair and is hanging over your face upside down with a knife to your eye. <laughs> I'm um, like, this is gonna be sweet. So, so yeah, we don't do the haunted house thing very much. It's really not a. You would think that the Atlanta area would have more haunted houses than it does, but when it comes to to the the thrill of scares, I'm right there with you. I love that kind of stuff. My wife, not so much. I love it though. I, I'm in the section between two hallways where I'm behind a curtain, 
and they come down the hall and there's all these doors on each side and I've got this one of my old scouts is in the hall and I I've got a bright bright flashlight. So when I'm turning it on and off people think it's a strobe light but it's just me with the flashlight and this kid's like almost 7 foot tall. He's had a huge growth spurt, very skinny lanky and he's got this creepy mask with these dreads that hang down and he does this like uh, creeper kind of crawl across the floor while I'm strobing at him and then they come in the hall and it's all dark so he starts leading him through the doors and it's just it's basically like three hallways that are all connected through the same doors and so he gets them all turned about and I'm sitting there with my head in the curtain and I'm like you can't get out that way oh you're all gonna die <laughs> like that and so they get close to my curtain I pull it tight so they think it's not a way out so they get going back and forth and you know we'll get three groups in at a time and I'm I'm constantly telling them you gotta follow the light it's just like life you can't get out without following the light and so they start getting closer and then I, I have on the other side of the curtain is another black hallway with a bunch of glow in the dark masks and my daughter and a couple of her friends are hiding behind some of the masks so I open the curtain and I'm hiding against the wall they can't see me and they walk past and they're like I think we found it I think we found the way out we gotta follow the light and they'll come through and they'll be like oh shit. and I've got a taser in my hand and I light it up I'm like oh shit, that's right <laughs> Oh, dude, people do not like the taser. Like, that scares the hell out of them every time. It's so much fun. Come, come, you know, stay for the thrills and uh, leave with a, a roll of charm. <laughs> Pretty much. Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we ponder E.K. Johnston's Star Wars Ahsoka. Now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you our quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's arrogance. She thought her war was over, but a new battle is just beginning. Ahsoka Tano, once a loyal Jedi apprentice to Anakin Skywalker, planned to spend her life serving the Jedi Order. But after a heartbreaking betrayal, she turned her back on the Order to forge her own path, knowing Anakin and the other Jedi would still be there for her should she ever need them. Then, the Emperor took over the galaxy, and the Jedi were ruthlessly murdered. Burdened with grief and guilt, Ahsoka is now truly on her own, unsure she can be part of something larger ever again. She takes refuge on the remote farming moon Rada, where she befriends a young woman named Caden and begins to carve out a life for herself. But Ahsoka cannot escape her path or the reach of the Empire. When Imperial forces occupy Rada, she must decide whether to become involved, even if it means exposing her Jedi past. Her choices will have devastating effects for those around her and lead her to a new hope for the galaxy. Don't we keep telling Ahsoka to stop exposing herself? Pretty I mean, much. Really. Um, yeah, this is this is an interesting one, right? Because it's Disney Lucasfilm Press rather than Del Rey. And it's an author that we haven't seen writing for Star Wars before. And it's basically a bridge story. Like, ever since Ahsoka disappeared from the Clone Wars after the end of Season 5, unless you count the one brief sort of dreamlike appearance to Yoda in Season 6... And then she reappeared at the end of season one of Rebels, having sort of been in the background the entire time without us knowing it was her. There's been sort of this question of, well, how does she get from point A to point B? And in essence, 
that's what this story is designed to do. It only really spans about a year or so worth of time, starting about a year after the events of Revenge of the Sith on the first of the Empire Day celebrations of the anniversary of when the Empire was founded, and carries on for about a year. She spends some time in a couple of different locations, in some cases going back to the same locations again. So it's not really a bridge of the entire time span, as many would have thought that it would have been kind of more like Lost Stars, where it was more a large time frame for one character's journey. And come to find out, it doesn't really include some of the stuff that was alluded to, and, and to his credit, he didn't say it was in the book, that was alluded to in uh, the celebration panel recently about Ahsoka, where Dave Filoni was up there making Ashley Eckstein cry and everything, with the Siege of Mandalore. So if you're looking for what was she doing at the time of Order 66, how does she manage to get out of that? Uh, is she targeted because she was a former Jedi and all that kind of stuff? It's barely dealt with with a handful of flashbacks. Then the rest of the story picks up once she's already in hiding and takes it from there. And how is she going to stay in hiding? How does she hook up with Bail Organa and all that kind of stuff? So it's an interesting story. And it's cool to see her journey and understand how she got from point A to point B. There's a part of me that's very disappointed, though, because really what I wanted to see was a Siege of Mandalore stuff. I mean, the stuff that is really hinted at in the flashbacks at the beginning of the book is what I wanted to see as a book or as episodes of something or as a comic series. Something. Because it's always been this question of, well, how does Order 66 play out with her and with Rex? And how does that spiral out? And come to find out, it also includes some other characters um, that we want to know how do they get from point A to point B. It's not that the main story that we get is a bad story. I actually like the story, and I think that the way that Ahsoka deals with things and her interaction with the characters and how she becomes Fulcrum, I think that works. I think it works very well. But it's like this is a story that, like so many others in the new canon, hints at this other more bombastic, more impactful, big conflict story that we're sorry we're not going to cover in a comic or a novel. You're going to have to wait to see that on screen at some point. Uh, sort of epitomizing that approach that they seem to be taking. So I'd say it's a good book. It's a book that I definitely say pick up if you're a fan of Ahsoka and you want to see how she got from point A to point B. But if you're expecting some big bombastic story that includes her and the events right around Order 66 in depth, you're going to be disappointed because this is much more of a once she's already in hiding, how does she become Fulcrum story rather than how does she get from Order 66 into hiding in the first place. It's definitely... Uh, not quite what many fans, I think, would have been hoping for after getting Lost Stars and, and a longer spanning story. Um, but it is a good way of giving us insight into Ahsoka's character and how she does become Fulcrum. Yeah, it's a, it's a great introduction book for E.K. Johnson. I mean, mm -hmm. I had never read anything of hers. And again, another one of these lady authors are proving they've got the clout. Like, I I really got a kick out of the book. I'm with you. I was hoping for more on the Siege of Mandalore. But I think that, that what they give us works enough for what they were trying to tell with the story. But I think, again, I'm with you. I was hoping for more of that. There were some really cool things that jumped up that had me thinking. Uh, you know, we see, like, uh, uh, crystals, lightsaber crystals get changed. Uh, you know, some of the color aspects and how that works. Uh, we discover some new Inquisitors, a new brother, which had me thinking about the fact that, you know, Palpatine had the Inquisitors actually up and going. You know, they could have been running before Order 66 or right 
as Order 66. Like, they may have been training before Order 66 went into effect. So when Order 66 went down, they were basically unleashed on the Jedi. Because it definitely felt like, you know, they were already operating and already been trained. Granted, we know that uh, from the show Rebels, the Grand Inquisitor was once a Jedi, which does fall in line with what we got with Legends, with Palpatine turning a lot of the Jedi and making them Inquisitors, making them Hands, making them Dark Jedi... Uh, but that was something that came up as well that, that I really got a kick out of. I think the thing that really I enjoyed the most out of this was that it was a Ahsoka point of view. Uh, that was something that I, I really appreciated. And the way that E.K. Johnston did it, uh, I felt it worked. Uh, another thing that I, I wanted to touch on while we're still in the spoiler-free part is that the uh, final copy of this book, uh, the actual hardcover underneath the dust coat, is the cover itself. was an interesting uh, way to go about it. And uh, they've got Ashley Eckstein reading the audiobook. I don't know. I, I would agree. I'm actually tempted because she's actually reading the book to go back and pick it up. If for no other reason... And I don't think this is a big spoiler or anything since we've mentioned the Siege of Mandalore in it. But at least briefly, Maul appears in a flashback in this book. And I want to hear the woman who voices Ahsoka do her best Sam Witwer Maul impression and do Maul. I'm very curious <laughs> how that voice plays. Uh, and the same thing really for some of the other characters that we, that we actually know from somewhere else. There aren't many in this book, it's basically Ahsoka, Bale, and for the most part, the other characters are new, um, with very few small cameos in it. But just to kind of hear that, I've heard a sample of it, and it's more a sample of just the narration part and a little bit of Ahsoka dialogue, so we don't really get a chance to see much in that sample of the other characters. But it actually has me interested enough that I may just plunk down the cash to get the audiobook, even though I've already got... Heck, I've already got multiple copies of the book at this point because they did the uh, San Diego Comic-Con release of an uncorrected proofs version just like they did with A New Dawn way back when um, that thankfully uh, Carlos was able to get. And then we had uh, the little three or five or whatever it is sample chapter booklet that was also from San Diego Comic-Con that Barrett was able to snag a copy of. And then eventually, you know, we got the final book coming in from Disney Lucasfilm Press. So... I'm, I've got plenty of ways to check out the book, but I still kind of want that other one. So uh, I'm good as far as spoiler-free goes. I think anything else I would have to say must delve into spoiler territory. What about you? Yeah, I think I'm there. I think, uh, you know, I agree with you. It, it's a strong book. I don't think it's one of the best books. Uh, I think that falls under my own category of perceptions, but... I think that's okay. I think uh, everyone out there, get this one, grab it, read it, judge it. Let us know what you think. And with that... We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentients of All Ages, because here we go. On another adventure, Beyond the Films. So, summarizing this one is a little bit odd because we have flashbacks taking part in it. So to start with the flashbacks in essence, we find out that basically, and as Dave Filoni said at Celebration, around the time of Order 66, there is a push to liberate Mandalore because apparently Darth Maul, after the events of Son of Dathomir, isn't fully defeated. He falls back with his Mandalorians. His Shadow Collective has fallen apart in terms of his other allies, but he is still controlling Mandalore. And as part of the operation to liberate it, Ahsoka has come 
to assist on Mandalore, and Obi-Wan and Anakin wind up basically bringing Rex and a bunch of the Torrent Company troopers, who according to Dave Filoni would have had their armor repainted to match Ahsoka's colors, and basically, it's, and isn't that just a, just as an aside, isn't that just a little bit racist? I mean, wouldn't that be like, we're going to put, you know, we're going to put this, mili- this military unit under the command of a black commander, so everybody's going to come in in blackface? A little bit racist, but whatever. <laughs> Maybe it just doesn't look that way in Star Wars. But they come in, and basically, uh, Anakin and Obi-Wan aren't able to help with the liberation of Mandalore in the battle against Maul, because they're called away to save Chancellor Palpatine at the beginning of Revenge of the Sith. So this is essentially taking the place of the old Labyrinth of Evil or the Clone Wars microseries explanation of what was it they were doing right before Revenge of the Sith. During the battle, Ahsoka winds up confronting Maul. They do battle, and thankfully, she's a little bit more tactical about her thinking and manages to capture him. And unfortunately, then Order 66 goes down. He winds up getting away in the chaos. Rex, who has had his chip removed, uh, isn't turning on anyone at this point. Uh, There's a lot of chaos in the clone ranks, and in the process, Ahsoka and Rex are able to escape. And they wind up essentially... Uh, creating this false information that he has killed her and she has killed him. Presumably like battle wounds or something. And they have a fake grave for Rex at which she leaves her lightsabers, which Anakin recovered after what happened at the end of season five and gave back to her when handing over a big chunk of his troops for the battle on Mandalore. So Ahsoka essentially goes into hiding, and we find her at the beginning of the book hiding out with the Fardy family. That's F-A-R-D-I, but I, I can't say it out loud without thinking they're going, Fardy. <laughs> so Jeez. pardon me. For, when I say it out loud, it just doesn't work. Uh, when I read it, Fardy is fine. When I say it out loud, it's, it brings out my inner two-year-old. But we find that she's on the planet Thabeska with the Fardy family. Hiding out, essentially, acting as a mechanic and whatnot, but when the Empire starts putting more attention on the family and its legal and illegal activities, she runs for it. And she winds up going to ground on the planet, or the moon, of Rada, which is basically this very small farming community type of place. And she meets uh, Caden Lart, a young woman who's there, a teenager, and uh, Miara, which is her sister, and the members of their farming crew. And things are going well enough. You know, again, she's kind of there as Ashla, quote-unquote, acting as though she's a mechanic and whatnot. But the Empire comes there as well. The Empire basically wants to force everyone there into farming a specific type of food or a specific type of crop for the Empire that's sort of a high-nutrient thing that you could use for long hours of workers, like, say, those building the Death Star, but which is going to destroy the land. So basically, once the Empire leaves, there'll be little left of the planet for them to actually still be able to survive there. And Ahsoka gets involved with them trying to make some stands against the Empire cautiously, the leader of the group, Vartan, decides to take it another step further and act a little more rashly, and in the process, winds up drawing a lot of Imperial attention. Some get killed, some go into hiding, Ahsoka is forced to reveal herself, and finally, when that's all kind of simmering down, she winds up having to leave the planet. In the process, she does wind up visiting the Fardis again, because she had seen the youngest of the daughters from that family use the Force a couple of months ago. She shows up and finds out that there was a, a sort of a shadow individual an inquisitor, the sixth brother, who had been sensed by the young daughter recently, but didn't actually approach her or anything. So the Inquisitors are out there looking for Jedi or people with force potential. Uh, She winds up leaving again, 
and comes into contact with Bail Organa, who has learned of some of her more heroic activities recently uh, in sort of the gap between these bits on the different planets and thinks that she might be a Jedi survivor and a good person to work with as part of this beginnings of the rebellion. Turns out he's kind of shocked to find that it's her, but it is. They already know each other. Uh, she's not quite sure about joining up with anything, but she does ask for help in dealing with the situation back on Rada when it turns out that the sixth brother, the Inquisitor, has gone there and is holding Caden. Uh, essentially basically sending out a message about his brutality there to draw the Jedi hero back, in this case, meaning Ahsoka. Uh, it basically works. Ahsoka does return, winds up essentially saving the day, winds up fighting against the sixth brother, and in the process, we see her essentially taking back on the role of a Jedi in many respects, the role of a protector, the role of someone fighting against injustice, and we see her get her new lightsaber. Uh, one of the people working with Bale has a staff-type weapon that she winds up basically confiscating in the middle of a battle and whatnot. She gets her hands on it, uh, hence how in Rebels it looks like a staff that she like splits in the middle and pulls apart to ignite. She tries to go to Ilum to get new lightsaber crystals, which is where we learn that, one, the crystals are almost semi-sentient. They sort of know who they're choosing. If we want to go back to the way that it worked with the younglings and the gathering back in Clone Wars, and that in essence, the color of the crystals is influenced by the actions of the Jedi. So you got blue and green for most Jedi, you've got red for the Sith, but the ex explanation is that the red is like the crystals being corrupted yeah. by the use of the dark side. There's a great moment of that too, where it's all dark crystals were made too, but not in this holy place. They were plundered from their rightful bearers and corrupted by the hands that stole them. Even rock could be changed by the power of the force, bleeding alterations until their color was the deepest red. The balance was finally staged between the two, light and dark, and it took very little to upset it. I thought that was a great, great description of where Red Saber's crystals come from. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure we'll get a lot more detail in that, I'm sure, especially given some implications on other things. Um, essentially, she goes she goes to Ilum, and none of the crystals are calling out to her. The ones that are calling out to her happen to be the ones in the spinning double-bladed lightsaber of the Sixth Brother, but they've been corrupted to red. When she finally defeats him, she recovers the crystals from his saber, which, using the Force, she essentially purifies, and in doing so, they become white or white energy blades hence why her lightsaber in rebels is white instead of a particular color and she decides that she is going to go ahead and stick with bail act to try to organize groups uh, kind of using the skills that she learned back on onderon and whatnot rather than being someone on the forefront of the fighting and because she sort of sees this operation as kind of a tipping point she decides to go under the name of Fulcrum, a name that we recently learned on Rebels was then adopted by other Rebel agents, not just Ahsoka, uh, but she is the original capital F Fulcrum. So we see her basically go through about a year of her life transforming from Ahsoka, the former Jedi who gets embroiled in what's happening and on Mandalore, into being Ahsoka, aka Fulcrum, the organizer kind of behind the scenes for rebel groups, and in the process, get to see her interacting with other people of uh, not really the same age, but slightly younger than her, that can be more like peers than a lot of times it was when it was her and Anakin, for instance, where he always kind of had that, that older brother type of feel to him. Uh, so her journey is still continuing, and unfortunately, by the end of the book, the Grand Inquisitor has shown up and knows that, yes, they've discovered somewhere out there that there is another surviving Jedi. They just don't know it's... Ahsoka, hence 
Vader being able to confirm that with The Apprentice Lives at the beginning of Rebels Season 2. Lots of making sure that everything fits with Rebels here. There was also, I like the theme of the fact that Jedi have a hard time going against their training. They can't turn their back on people in need. And I I think that Ahsoka illustrates that perfectly because she already going into this isn't a Jedi, and yet the training overwhelms everything. I mean, she can't turn her back on injustice. Uh, And even when she does, it kind of backfires on her to a degree. And I would argue that that's not even necessarily a Jedi thing. That's just sort of at the core of of making a character human. Like, everybody has something to themselves, whether it's a self-perception or... Uh, what things that there are that they value or that they're, they feel are worth risking anything for and such, that you'll find that people sort of follow the same patterns over time. You know, so like, like for me, it's the teacher side of things. Like, even if I wasn't teaching, even before I decided I was going to go into teaching, like say in 97 or so, although that was right before I started deciding I was going to go into teaching, I was already doing like the timeline stuff. I already kind of had that teaching bug, so to speak, because it was just sort of ingrained in who I am. And even if I wasn't teaching students uh, for public school right now, I would imagine I'd be doing some other type of teaching in some other way. Even if it was that my day job wasn't that, but I was doing much more of this kind of stuff with, you know, the podcasts and the videos teaching. In a sense, they're sort of like things that become the core of a person that they carry with them regardless. And I kind of feel like with Ahsoka, that's what that's what that is. It was sort of instilled in her at a very young age. And because of that, it's become so central to her that it's not even so much that it's... I think that it'd be easy to say this as well as Jedi brainwashing. They just teach you that you must act like this. But I think it's more just a, this defines what her values are. So yes, she's going to do that. She has to do it in a different way now. But she's not going to turn her back on people in need because part of her is just this heroine, so to speak. So let's get back to the lightsaber thing. You already brought up the lightsaber thing. So let's kind of circle back to the lightsaber thing. This threw me a little bit because it's giving us a new canonical explanation for the colors of lightsabers. Um, Used to be that, well, if it's red and it's a Sith lightsaber, it's because they went in and they created an artificial crystal and it's always going to come out as red. Well, and even that's not necessarily the case because we had Ferris Olin who went to Ilum and came away with a red lightsaber crystal from Ilum. Right. And then we've got all the other colors that we see in things like, you know, Jedi Knight Dark Forces 2 or The Old Republic. Of course, in the films, we only tend to see the handful of colors. But it sort of begs the question to me of, okay, well, if that is true, and it is, you know, for canon at least, and and it is that what it's being used for and the way the force is being used around it sort of changes and taints its color, is there then a characterization difference in how an individual uses the force and what they use it for, their attitude when doing so, et cetera, et cetera, that makes a distinction between, say, blue and green. Because there was a time when the thought was, well, blue must be master because Obi-Wan had it. Well, then it comes Qui-Gon with green. So that means green's a master and blue was an apprentice who just happened to keep their same color. And is it a rank thing? There was a lot of question. And then you've got the unusual case of Mace Windu. And I'm thinking, if the Sith are evil... And Dark Jedi are evil, which makes red lightsabers. The Jedi are good, which makes green and blue. Then does that mean that Mace Windu is just so screwed up emotionally that his comes out different than everybody? Like, maybe he doesn't want to take a side. It's the whole Vapad thing, you know? It is. Tell tell me I got to use blue or green only again, motherfucker. Tell me. 
It's Vapod. I mean, think about it, dude. Red and blue make purple. I mean, he had a blue lightsaber. He starts using Vapod. It's a very dark thing. It's slowly corrupting, and we're seeing it through his crystals. Like, But I never would have thought about that before until this book. I'm like, wait a minute. Mace is turning? Doesn't that, though, doesn't that mean then that since the Inquisitor, right, would have been one of the Temple Guard dudes, the Sentinel, so he had a yellow saber, and now he has red. If he had started to lean back toward the light, would that mean his lightsaber would have been like, orange man yeah what's, that's what's the dark saber imply <laughs> this, this is how you teach star wars fan children their primary colors and what makes what <laughs> ladies and gentlemen i thought that was an interesting approach though again it sort of flies in the face of what we had seen before and i'm i'm not 100 sure off the top of my head if that was if the whole synthetic crystal thing was referenced back in the uh, star wars everything you need to know book i think it was but it seems like there's a lot of things within that book that they pulled from legends and said, well, you know, this is what you need to know for the new canon. And there's been so many questions since then of, you know, well, what actually is valid out of that book that I think I'm at the point where Star Wars Everything You Need to Know is no longer a book that I would recommend to anybody <laughs> because it doesn't seem like it's actually matching canon, even though it's supposed to be the ground of that. It, they just had um, the thing from the Antilles instruction from Rebels where... They said, well, Star Wars, everything you need to know says that uh, Hobby and Biggs defected at the same time from the Rand Ecliptic. What gives? He wasn't supposed to defect with Wedge from Sky Strike Academy. And Pablo's answer on Rebels Recon was, well, maybe Hobby goes back and helps Biggs uh, uh, defect, which isn't exactly the same thing. But again, it's an element from that book being written over. And the book does have a little disclaimer that some of the stuff may be from Legends, but I don't know if that's the case. Why? It's like it's like that book shouldn't have existed yet. <laughs> yeah. Why were they purposely muddying the waters? Yeah. Don't give us an essential guide to canon, basically, until you actually have a canon to show us what's essential. But I digress. So I thought that was interesting. I also uh, I'm with you in that I was a little bit taken aback by the fact that there are already Inquisitors active. Mm -hmm. Now we know that there are already Inquisitors around in Legends around this time, uh, thanks to things like uh, Reversal of Fortune Endgame and that kind of stuff. But I don't know. I, I guess I expected to see them as a later invention, but this would sort of make sense with the whole idea of, you know, Sidious trying to capture all the Force-sensitive children back in the Clone Wars and try to twist them. Surely he was doing it more than just that one time. So it makes sense. But I'm not sure I would have expected an Inquisitor to show up in this book so early in the Dark Times kind of era here, and especially to have the Grand Inquisitor show up at the end. He must have turned relatively quickly um, when Order 66 happened, maybe even to the point where he's about to be killed and they basically say, you know, you got one chance to live. You know, you either join us or you die or something because we saw him theoretically as the Sentinel, I think is what they were calling him, and yet here he is at the end of this book within about a two-year stretch after Revenge of the Sith already leading the Inquisitors. Yeah, that was something that really jumped out to me. I was like, okay, he's the sixth brother. You know, we still don't even know how that works. Like, are there like eight brothers and eight six sisters, or is it just like eight of them all together kind of thing? They each got a reference number. I mean, I, that's something that has always confused me as well. But to, to find out that they were already active was something that really started to get my brain going. You know, I was thinking the same thing like you. Was Palpatine already taking these and, and creating a shadow order? Were these guys fail safes for if Vader didn't work out? Because we see similar in the Marvel comics where Sidious was working with other groups where he was creating techno 
Force users, people that weren't using the Force per se, but were using more technology-based stuff. You know, he was he was kind of dabbling in a lot of fields at this point, and it definitely had me start to think about, you know, what his plan was beyond Order 66, because I wouldn't have ne- necessarily thought that he would have had these guys so ready to go so soon. Makes you wonder, does he have his own Sith Academy somewhere or Dark Side Academy where he's training these people? Because where would he have been doing it? I mean, granted, he's done similar with Maul, he's done similar with Savage, uh, you know, Dooku and stuff. He's always doing things in the background, but that just seemed like something a little more bigger and bolder than normal for Palpatine. Mm-hmm. And it was, I would assume that maybe it was on Mustafar. It's where Jedi go to die. Maybe it's less about dying and more about changing. Ooh. And of course, I believe Mustafar was where the lab was set up back in Clone Wars, where they were trying to twist the little the little babies. So I guess it's funny because I look at this book and I'm like, there's so much cool stuff, but the stuff that screams to me, this is so cool, is the flashbacks to Siege of Mandalore <laughs> stuff. So, so to delve into that a little bit here, I, I kind of feel like this is a good book, but not a lot to say about it. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. So Siege of Mandalore. I never expected to that Maul went back to Mandalore after Son of Dathomir. Son of Dathomir, to me, felt like it was supposed to be the end of Maul, and he just, like, disappears into obscurity, just like Sidious is like, yeah, he's no longer an issue. And then he just reappears in Rebels, only to find out here that the Mandalorians that helped him get out of there, uh, they go back, and they're still actually ruling Mandalore, at least for a little while, before the Siege of Mandalore happens. So it makes sense, you know, we knew there was going to be a Siege of Mandalore to get it back in, in good leadership hands, in theory. Um, But I guess I always thought it would have been just the remnants of Death Watch versus the others or the ones that had been loyal to Maul versus others or, or something. I would not necessarily have expected Maul to have actually gone back. But it was cool to see Maul facing off against Ahsoka and you know, talking his talking his BS in the midst of the fight. It just wasn't something I necessarily expected. It's the it's the aftermath of that though that leaves me sort of sort of scratching my head. Because when we meet Rex uh, and Gregor again and Wolf again uh, in Relics of the Republic uh, or Relics of the Old Republic, whatever it's called, uh, in season two of Rebels, they talk about how you know they they left Imperial service, they didn't have their chips in their head, blah blah blah. But it makes it sound like they were at least with the Empire for a little bit. Yeah. And then basically retired and walked away. This gives the impression that at least for Rex, there's never any time in which he's basically serving with the Empire. That as soon as Order 66 goes down, he and Ahsoka get the heck out of there and they fake his death. So I'm wondering if that's an inconsistency or if it's sort of a, you know, what I said was true from a certain point of view thing. And someday we're going to get that fleshed out a little bit more. I, I think that's a certain point of view because I think, yeah, Rex quote unquote dies during Order 66, but... He's a clone, so I think he goes back, he's working underneath, you know, the guise of other clones, because they do reference that he went in and deleted a lot of things from the Imperial database. Mm -hmm. Best way to do that and get your brothers out is to go in incognito, almost the way, uh, which was it, Ordo, uh, from Karen Travis's books, how he was doing similar, trying to get the rest of the clones out, so when Order 66 went down, they would leave. At least that was what they had in Legends. They, They knew about it beforehand, whereas Rex kind He's the only one that really knows at this point. So he's the only one. He's basically the Calscarada here. He's going to be the one to try to get his brothers out. And the best way to do that is to infiltrate as just a regular fold and file clone. Oh, man. So what they need is they need to fold a little bit of this story into Legends then so that we can have a story in which Rex runs into Darman, who decided to stay behind and everything after all the circular conversations in Imperial Commando. I just look at him and go, you really are a dumb (laughs) aren't you? (laughs) God, I hated Imperial Commando. Sorry, sorry. 
coming from someone who really loved the other Karen Travis Star Wars books, Imperial Commando still just yeah. just grates against my soul because it was such a completely pointless, repetitive book. Yeah. In the realm of Siege of Mandalore, you know, you mentioned the fact we got Maul there. It does make me wonder if we will get a return to the Siege of Mandalore, maybe in comics, maybe in a flashback on Rebels or something. But from Maul's point of view, it seems like Rebels is hinting at more of that when they talk, you know, when he's talking to Sabine, when they talk about her being Mandalorian, what's been going on with the Mandalorians. I get the feeling that whatever happened during the second Siege of Mandalore, that's when the Sith hit the fan. Yeah, it'd be interesting to learn more about it. I wonder if since Ahsoka essentially out of play at this point though if that's going to be a story that we ever actually get it certainly has the feel that this is something that they're they're holding for some later use otherwise it would have been used more here but I don't know, you know, what, we're, what are they going to do with it? It'd be awesome to give us, you know, something like a, even if it's a direct-to-video movie type thing, but I don't really know what they're going to do with it or how they're going to do it. I do like, kind of going back to that, you know, like I said, sort of the, the smack talking from Maul at that point. I mean, it's cool to hear them smack talking. So you have Maul saying, you know, it was so nice of your former masters to send you out alone and spare me the exertion of a proper fight. You're not even a real Jedi. And her response is, it'll be a fair fight then. You're only half a Sith, right? Because because he's missing the legs and everything. He's like, no Jedi, but still a coward. Or did Skywalker forget to teach you how to stand your ground before he threw you aside? I mean, there's just, it's funny because in so many ways you could see Ahsoka and Maul are kind of like reflections of each other, you know? Yeah. Um, she felt betrayed, so she chose to leave. But she still is carrying inside her what made her a Jedi. And Maul, for his part, uh, wasn't so much cast aside as just sort of abandoned. Like, I guess there wasn't an effort to figure out if he was still alive once he was cut in half. And when he comes back, he finds that he's been replaced. The Clone Wars has already started without him. And he's not going to be taken back into the Sith fold. So he has that anger, but he still holds within him those things that made him Sith. Very much two sides of sort of the same coin, almost like a, a there but for the grace of God go I kind of thing. You know, if if something had happened worse to Ahsoka, could she have gone towards Maul's perspective? Uh, and if what happened with Maul had somehow led to some kindness, could Maul have wound up leaning more towards redemption towards Ahsoka's side? Probably not in either case, but you can see the reflections between them that makes for an interesting symmetry between the two. So I, I like the fact that they did bring them together here. Yeah, that was a real cool moment. Uh, one of the other things that I like later, we see, you know, we had the references to the young Jedi uh, Padawan episodes in the Clone Wars, but she actually goes back to Ilum and we see Ilum in control under the Imperial regime, mm-hmm. which was something we had seen also in Legends in the Ferris Olin story when he returned back to Ilum. And I thought that was a really cool moment because that was, you know, all these Legend stories have been thrown out to a sense, you know, aren't, you know, canon. Those are the type of things. So having that moment, you know, even if it was only half a chapter, even at most, you know, just having that return to Ilum and seeing Ilum and the fact that she was pondering it, you know, like, I don't think Jedi can come back here. I don't think this is a place for Jedi. Those are the type of moments that I really got a kick out of, you know? And it's, and it's tied in though too, right? I mean, it's good. That scene, I mean, that's where we find out that, that they're going after something very large there. So we're figuring that we're talking about a giant kyber crystal for the Death Star, which would tie into that type of crystal being kept from getting into Imperial hands in an episode of Rebels, the big crystal that we see in the the unfinished Utapau arc of Clone Wars, plus there's all kinds of rumors that there may be a kyber crystal uh, story point somewhere within Rogue One. So to use this book to sort of drive that home again, it's it's making Ilum's place, I almost may say it makes Ilum 
like a darker element of the Star Wars saga. It's not just the place for the lightsaber crystals, it's also the place where these destructive crystals come from, which was not something really that Legends did. For Legends, it was just, it's a lightsaber crystal place, and it's cold. Well, yeah, and the, and the angle of the the crystals calling to you and the, the almost sentientness of it, I mean, we had the Iron Knights who came from a crystal race, uh, the Shard, mm -hmm. who were very similar to that, and it almost gives the crystals now a Shard-like quality, which is kind of creepy, like, to, to think that they call out to you I almost, though, I think it's less to do with sentience and more fate. You know, like this one's fated to you and it's calling out to you. I, I think the implied aspect that she knows the crystals that are in her new lightsabers, that one was interesting because it could be old fallen Jedi friends, but a part of me was almost wondering if they might have been her old crystals. Could very well be. I mean, they could have been they could have been taken from Rex's grave because she said she didn't know if they would still be there. She figured they probably wouldn't be. Somebody would have taken them and sold them probably. And who better than an Inquisitor to be tracking down what happened to all the Jedi that may or may not have fallen. Exactly. I think that, um, uh, I do like the idea that it's sort of, it's like you're fated to it so the Force is kind of calling to you, but they make it seem in the book like they have like a semi-sentience and it's like they're thinking about the call, unless it's just personification of some form, which kind of makes me laugh a little bit because I think about like, for instance, that there's a crystal that winds up in Anakin's lightsaber. It may or may not even be the same freaking crystal he had originally because Anakin goes through multiple lightsabers. And then that one that may have called to Anakin gets kept by Obi-Wan for years, gets handed off to Luke, winds up disappearing on Cloud City, winds up in the hands of Maz Kanata, winds up in the hands of Finn briefly after calling to Rey and she rejects it, which must have really hurt the Crystal's feelings. Uh, and then, of course, it winds up back in Rey's hands and, and Kylo says it's his, so maybe he feels it calling to him. It's, it's kind of like we need to take the lightsaber crystal out of the... Anakin slash Luke slash Ray lightsaber and give it its own episode of Jerry Springer so it can work out its issues because it has just as many issues of who it's supposed to be paired with uh, as any other family dysfunction in Star Wars. <laughs> Maybe that's the true awakening. Once Ray awoken, the crystal's like, her, 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 her. I choose her. I pick her. <laughs> At which point Finn is like, you sexist racist. <laughs> He's like, is this a black thing? Damn it. Damn it. Is it because I'm a guy? Another cool moment, though, which I only think it was really cool because I applied Shatterpoint to it, is when Ahsoka goes up against the Inquisitor and touches his saber and causes it to explode. I'm like, she clearly had to have touched the Shatterpoint, right? Like, that's that's what we saw? Yeah, I was like, what is that? Behold the full power of a Jedi. All Kanan needs to do is touch the weapon of his enemies. Like, wait, what? I think that was supposed to be kind of like what we got uh, at the end of Season 1 in Fire Across the Galaxy, when basically Kanan is able to stick his blades in and destroy the saber that the uh, Grand Inquisitor is holding. I think it's supposed to be like an echo of that. But yeah, I was like, wait, she did what? To destroy it? I just kind of wrote it off as, okay, well, she found a way to destroy the saber. Okay, no big, no biggie. Uh, that, 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 that's fine. Yeah, I'm like, I'm like, she found Shatterpoint. Yay, go Ahsoka. <laughs> and it's interesting to see her, because through most of this book, until we really get to the end, she doesn't have lightsabers. So when she does use Jedi abilities, it's sort of a combination of her Jedi training in terms of tactics, in terms of kind of knowing when you're, you kind of would push too far, so you got to be a little more subtle, and using things like mind tricks or telekinesis and whatnot. It's relatively rare for us in a Star Wars story to see someone who is a Jedi portrayed without access to any kind of lightsaber, so that they're relying on those other skills, because in a lot of ways, that makes for a different type of story, a story that's more about subtlety, subterfuge, uh, that's more about 
uh, kind of strategy, uh, as I say, strategery to use a, a Bushism, but more about strategy than it is about just a, a head-on fight. There's plenty of moments where she has that head-on fight, but you can sort of see that it's building towards that and that she's going to have to be subtle throughout. And again, that's something that I like, and it's nice to see the comparison there because there was a time when Ahsoka was the brash one. Yeah. Right? You know, she was the one who was like back on, gosh, was it Felucia, I guess, where it was either Felucia or Umbara, maybe even both, where the, the, she thought she had the Separatists on the run. She didn't realize the bigger strategy that was going on. And she almost wound up getting captured because of it or got captured because of it. Whereas here, she's the one urging caution. She has matured. She's urging caution. She's urging subtlety. And it's the locals who are like, no, we want to do this now. You know, she, in a lot of ways, she's the Obi-Wan when facing Dooku in Attack of the Clones. And the locals are the Anakin just jumping in overconfident and getting in over their heads. A lot of the characterization of Ahsoka here, as much as we're inside her head with the narration, it still seems to be more her actions a lot of times that tell us about the character more so than just the narration, yeah. which is good. And I think this shows a good sense of understanding where the character is at the end of Clone Wars, as opposed to just kind of a general character sketch. Like, E.K. Johnson seems like she did her research. I would compare that to the Princess Leia comic series, where it's like the only research, apparently, that the writer did was, oh, she's 19 years old and a white girl. She's gonna whine about things going wrong and needing to stop going wrong for two seconds and basically be a brat. No, that's not who Leia is. Did you watch <laughs> the movies? Whereas in this case, it, you get the sense that if Johnston didn't go back and watch a lot of stuff about Ahsoka to get this point of characterization, then we lucked out with someone whose characterization of Ahsoka matched where she should have been. Yeah, I feel like, you know, while Ahsoka took the center stage, I feel like it was the characters around her that drove everything. Uh, you know, we, we have Caden and her sister, which I kept calling Mara because her name's really close to Mara and I couldn't find out any other way to say it how are you saying it was that myra how are you doing it nate come on it's it's miara isn't it or something like that how do you spell it uh, it's m-i-a-r-a -A. yeah miara was how i was saying it okay yeah I, I was always saying it wrong i was just like man i need to get this audiobook but then again i was also thinking kaiden instead of caden because of the a-e too but I don't know if it's supposed to be Caden or Kaiden. Uh, see, for me, we with my daughter, we call her Tay, and we go T-A-E like that. So I always that's why I went Caden. Yep. Uh, but I, I thought it was kind of interesting that they played up the fact that that Caden had a crush on Ahsoka, and Ahsoka wasn't put off by it. She just kind of like didn't give too much to it. She was just kind of like, what well, you know, whatever. We're friends. But the group of farmers on Rada the interactions that they had, the way that Ahsoka's slowly kind of building a cell around them and learning what it takes to run a cell. And she doesn't really learn it until she comes across Bale's group and sees what it's done right and where her strengths and weaknesses lie only come to, you know, light once she sees that similarity, you know, with the contrast between what she was doing, what Bale's got going on. But the way that she was building that up and the way that the characters were interacting and the way they were getting angry about the more hours, the fact that they, the Empire was destroying their, their livelihood, uh, the way that that all played up and worked, I really got a kick out of it so much so that when the sixth brother finally comes and, and wipes out a majority of the rebel cell there on Rada in the caves, that was a very sad moment for me. I was really... I 
I was really tore up. Like, I was kind of like, man, there's nothing left for you to come back. And by the time we get to the end of the book and Ahsoka does everything that she does there on Rada and she calls on Bale for reinforcements, I felt like it was a huge victory at that moment, even though a good chunk of the people that were in that cell that I had come to know and love had been wiped out and everyone that she saved were basically a bunch of nobodies, but, you know, two or three characters. I still felt like it was a win because of the way there was this familiarity we had with the people on Rada because she'd spent so much time there. I felt that really worked for the story. Yeah, I won't say that I got much of an emotional impact out of that. This book didn't really evoke much strong emotion for me as opposed to some of the other ones recently, you know, Life, uh, not Life Debt. Oh, Life Debt was pretty good. Uh, I was thinking more of Lost Stars and whatnot, or, uh, gosh, my, my brain is is eluding me here. The one with Asajj and Quinlan. Oh, Dark Disciple. Dark Disciple, there you go. Um, those tended to have the strong emotional response, not so much this one, but I, I do think that they made a very strong cast of other characters around them. They weren't all that nuanced in many ways, but you really kind of get a sense of the bond forming between Caden, Kaiden, whatever, and Ahsoka, I'll say about Bale, it's good to see Bale here. I thought that it worked well as another one of these connections and bridges. I mean, she could theoretically have joined the Rebellion through someone else, or it could have been later, but it makes perfect sense for it to be Bale, given the connections that we see uh, with Bale assisting at the end of Season 1 and Fulcrum slash Ahsoka being the agent of making that happen. Having those two working together, even early on, makes sense and so on. Uh, but the first time they have their encounter, or they kind of try to set up an encounter, that was actually pretty funny to me. It's a very slapsticky almost kind of moment where basically Bale's like, yeah, I know that there's this Jedi out there, it seems, so go out and see if you can find whoever it is and bring them into the fold. And meanwhile, Ahsoka's trying to get away, runs afoul briefly of some Black Sun guys who get chased off when Bale's uh, guy's ship shows up and then Ahsoka's taken aboard and she doesn't even get a chance to talk. <laughs> she kicks all their asses, gets to the cop and is like, oh, Hi, R2-D2, or r 2 How are you? Crap. And then and then she takes off, you know, and then sets up a meeting essentially on her own by sneaking into his office and whatnot. But uh, to have it be sort of a, hey, Ahsoka Tano, we're pleased to meet, kind of thing, you know, I thought that was pretty cool. I'm glad you brought that up because that was one of the other spots that brought me almost to tears. It was Ahsoka sh uh, shrugged and opened the hatch that led to the bridge. The first thing she noticed was that there was no people here either. The second thing she noticed was the beeping of an astromech droid, one that sounded exactly like R2. She didn't mean to shout at the little droid, but she was so startled and surprised she couldn't help it. She had had a very stressful day. The little blue and silver droid disconnected from the console he was working on and rolled across the floor to her so quickly that she had thought for a second he might have flown. He was beeping so fast she could barely understand him, but she could tell by his tone that R2-D2 was as happy to see her as she was to see him. I'm so glad you're okay, she said, dropping to her knee to give the droid a hug. She didn't care if it was a silly thing to do, and R2-D2 seemed to appreciate the gesture. They didn't even memory wipe you? The droid beeped happily to her. You work for a senator? You're not supposed to tell me who? This moment for me was so damn awesome. And it's so small and stupid, but I got such a kick out of it. I almost expect, I guess the news would have to have gotten around, but I would almost have expected it to be a, you work for a senator? Is Padme okay? <laughs> oh... Sorry, I didn't mean to bring that up, little buddy, you know, because we don't know what she knows or doesn't know. I mean, she doesn't figure out the whole Anakin Vader thing until we get into a Siege of Lothal. Well, it threw me off, though, that she knew about Palpatine being Sidious, though. That, I was like, wait, did... 
Kenobi send that out? Like, I don't remember him ever saying that that full-on happened. Oh, hey, uh, Sith Lord took over. Uh, run. But, I mean, remember the running and hiding, but was there a Sith Lord mention ever in any of the messages? Not that I recall, but, you know, in theory, I mean, I guess the word could have gotten around. Maybe she ran into some other Jedi survivors or something or she just was able to sort of tell like she looks at him yeah yeah he's sith he's a bad apple (laughs) judging that wrinkled ugly book by its cover uh i don't know so again it's it's an it's odd that what we've got here is a book that bridges this gap and is a relatively strong book but i really feel like it's like these little things that we're picking out that bear discussion and it's the flashbacks and such, the bare discussion, and the bulk of the main story plays out in such a straightforward way that it doesn't feel like there's a lot to even really talk about. Like, I, like I'm at the point where I literally have nothing left to talk about, and I don't even think we've hit the exact hour mark yet. I think we're close, but that's also non-spoiler stuff and summary and all of that. Is it just me, or does this feel like, it, it, from discussion point standpoint, it's a pretty light book given... It's importance. No, you're right. I mean, it's more like a bridge story. It's connecting a lot of things, and it doesn't need to add too much. It just needs to give you that through line. Like, we we have a Kenobi scene where it's him on Tatooine that has nothing to do with her. It was just kind of thrown in there, and, and it worked, but it was a lot of things like that where, you know, a reference here and a reference there, an event here and, and a Clone Wars arc there and a Rebels one. Taking the Chuck Wendig approach to what else is happening in the galaxy. Except at least some of them were flashbacks that were relevant. I never really felt like, except for maybe the Obi-Wan one, that we were looking at flashbacks not somehow relevant to the core story because it was Ahsoka's story. Yeah, exactly, exactly. She kept it on point. Uh, but I... I and that's, to me, you know, I, I like stories like that, I but I do see what you're saying. It's not the strongest story overall with events happening. Uh, you know, it is more character told, but it is a focus on Ahsoka. So the characters that are all told, you know, we find out most of them get wiped out. So they really don't matter to the large scheme of things. This is really the how does Ahsoka become fulcrum tale. And I can appreciate that for what it is, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I guess my final thoughts on the book would simply be that if you really want to know about what was happening with Ahsoka, this is the book to check out. Uh, It gives you a lot of character development for her. It gets you from point A to point B. It explains the lightsabers. We get little nuances about this era and the very first steps of the rebellion. We even get some flashbacks that give us more about what was happening with Ahsoka around the time of Revenge of the Sith, why she's able to still be around, why Rex is still able to be around. It's not so much that this story in and of itself is going to be this great galaxy-spanning thing. It's not going to feel like it has an impact on the galaxy outside of these characters, per se, but it sets up these characters to be able to have more of an impact on the galaxy outside of themselves in the future it's very much as mark said a bridging story or you might say sort of a almost like a character reset for ahsoka taking her from one direction sending her off in the next kind of like actually i would compare it to what we've just seen with uh, legacy i mean we covered star wars legacy from the legends continuity up through what happened in vector and then as we've come back to it we're seeing arcs and in a lot of ways have to send the characters in new directions to sort of build where they're going next and in a lot of ways that's what this book does specifically for Ahsoka. Uh, Not so much for Bale. Bale's kind of where we expect him to be. But Ahsoka, she does have a clear arc through this story in getting more involved, in not entirely being in hiding. Um, That is a good progression for her. I just wish we'd seen more of what happened with 
mall and whatnot. See, and I kind of hope we get a sequel to this where we see Ahsoka more take on a Mara Jade role to a Talone card role where Bale is Talone and she's Mara and it allows Bale to kind of be more of the senator and allow Ahsoka to kind of run his cell kind of thing. Like, this is a great opportunity for them to put Ahsoka stories set that are closer to Order 66, not so as uh, close to Rebels, but they could give us like a small arc or something and give us some more stories, give us some more tales, have her run into some other people, uh, you know, do stuff like that. I think that that would be a cool thing. I don't think they'll do it. It seems like the new canon, they don't really want to run with many characters right now. They just want to tell uh, placement stories, you know, one here, one there. It's not like where you get like a Ferris Olin character who, you know, started out as a side character in one story, gets picked up in another one, and then becomes a solid character in his own, in the third series kind of thing, which... I would like something like that. I think Ahsoka could be a character you could you could utilize in something like that. But I, I don't know if they will do that. I think this book could work that direction. I think that E.K. Johnson's done a great job in that regard, setting things up that if they wanted to come back, they absolutely could. But I think the problem here is that they don't need to. Uh, you know, it, it, it functions enough that we could go from this book to seeing her walk on to Rebels, and you don't need to know anything else in between. And I think that that's the problem with getting to have more stories, is that there is less of a need to know that stuff, and they're not going to go out on that branch. Very true. I actually have to sit back and wonder, as you were talking about that, if Ahsoka wasn't in Rebels, given how much they're focused on the original trilogy era and sequel trilogy era right now, and barely doing a thing with the prequel era, for instance, even though... Though Clone Wars was such a big part of canon, I gotta sit back and wonder if she wasn't in Rebels, would we even have ever gotten a Whatever Happened to Ahsoka book? Because under their current philosophy, it seems like that's driving what they're approving and putting out through all the different uh, publishers, not just Disney Lucasfilm Press, but Del Rey also and Marvel. I'm not sure that we would have ever gotten to see what happened to her after she left in Clone Wars if she hadn't shown up as Fulcrum. No, I think you're right in that regard. I mean, people have mocked and teased that Ahsoka is Filoni's girl. And, you know, that that works both directions. I think that, that the reason why we got to see her is because Filoni was involved with Rebels and Filoni worked her into becoming Fulcrum. And, I mean, had she not been his baby, I don't think... I'm in agreement with you. I don't think she would have been the flash in the pan that she is, aside from, you know, being a rallying point for fangirls the way Mara Jade was when she first came out. Uh, you know, I mean, Ahsoka's always kind of been the canon Mara Jade, you know, the, the fangirl's uh, favorite. So I, I don't know if she would have been able to have that staying power. I would like to think so because I liked Ahsoka. You know, I didn't care for her when she first walked into the film, but by the end of that series, I was emotionally distraught. I mean, I still want to have a Legends version of this story. I want to know what happens to her in Legends. Mm -hmm. Granted, this is great for canon, but this does not solve what happened to her in Legends. And that's still a universe that won't go away. And so that story still needs to be told in that. Uh, so, I mean, we're not going to see it there. So I, I, I'm in agreement with you on that. I I don't think, had she not been brought into Rebels, I don't think we'd have seen her again. Which is unfortunate. One of the few characters in canon that really got the most overall character development and focus over time. Uh, although, of course, at this point, we're saying that when there really hasn't been much in terms of new canon stories relative to what we saw in Legends. So, yeah, definitely one that I would say check out. I would probably, actually, though I haven't heard it yet, I'd probably say this is one to check out the audiobook for because of the voice actress coming back to reprise the role and take on uh, the narration duties and whatnot. Uh, it's good in print, but that may be sort of the definitive way of checking out this story. Yeah, 
easily. Another thing that I wanted to touch before we left was I like the fact that Ahsoka brought up Barris, uh, Barris Alfie, and the fact that she was very close to being right and yet went about things wrong. Mm-hmm. And then there was also a moment where Caden was talking to Ahsoka and she goes, you lied to keep us safe. He lied because he enjoys the suffering. I may not be a Jedi who's seen much of the galaxy, but I can tell the difference. And I thought that was cool because it was it illustrated the two different versions of you know the 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 light and the dark and the way that they were going at things uh, and and the fact that Caden was able to see that you know well yeah sometimes the Jedi lied they were doing it out of a sense of right which was always a, a thing that Legends messed with you know they played with it the most do the ends justify the means uh, and that was something that Legends really played with more so to have that come up in canon was something I enjoyed as well. So before we uh, bail out of here, I just I wanted to talk real quick about the covers here. We had the Uncorrected Proof had a hand-drawn Dave Filoni uh, illustration of Ahsoka with her two Clone Wars green blades with the Jedi logo behind it. They Of course, they ditched that when they got to the final copy where we've got Ahsoka with her silver blades standing in front with some really weird background. I think the thing about the official cover they went with that throws me off is that I feel like when I look at Ahsoka's face in this, I'm seeing Freddie Prince Jr.'s wife, Michelle Geller, looking back at me. I'm just like, that doesn't really feel like Ahsoka. Whereas Filoni's, like, she had this sad look, but I don't know. Like, Filoni's art just kind of feels like the quintessential look to me. I don't know. What, what do you think about those covers, man? I And, you know, I, I wasn't all that thrilled with the Uncorrected Proofs cover because, you know, I kind of wanted something a little more detailed. But, of course, it is, you know, it is what it is. Usually an Uncorrected Proofs copy comes with, you know, the weird Del Rey stuff on the sides or something. Yeah. Because, uh, of course, this isn't Del Rey, but it has something like that with, you know, just the text on the cover with no image or anything. So at least it had a cover, I guess. And, um... I don't, yeah, there, there's something about the way that Ahsoka is depicted on the cover of the final version that throws me off. I'm not sure I would have said Sarah Michelle Geller in looking at her face, but she doesn't quite look like I would expect Ahsoka to. But at the same time, this also seems like it's leaning kind of like some of the, the action figures are leaning now, where they're sort of leaning towards getting away from that animated stylization and giving us something that's more real. So if you take the way that she looked in Clone Wars age her to the way she looks in Rebels, find a spot in between and try to make it look more realistic. I'm assuming maybe this is what you come up with. So it throws me a little bit, but it's not any more uncharacteristic of the character than the way that they've drawn the real versions of like the Rebels uh, ghost crew for Fantasy Flight Games' games. I mean, some of those look ridiculous. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division of Podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Stitcher and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. It's our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or EU slash Legends questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at 
StarWarsFanWorks.com. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention to you our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash Star Wars Report, you can get a free trial run of Audible.com to see what they're all about. You can run out right now and get Ahsoka. In fact, our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars universe, the canon one, or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate. Because Audible members, they can exchange any book within 12 months with no questions asked. So, in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds. But all of you will visit StarWarsFanWorks.com slash timeline to check out the new 2016 edition of the Star Wars Timeline Gold, now at 3,000 plus pages. You really should. You can make it a birthday present for Nate. Download, share, spread the word. I still can't believe how big that thing is, man. I, I like the fact that in the uh, introduction video you had, you had the tablet where you were like flipping through it. <laughs> I was like, oh, nice. That's, you can actually show them how to do it. Because, <laughs> you know, thinking about printing out 3,000 pages would just, oh, my God. And you know there's somebody out there that probably does it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure there's someone who does it. Someone who takes it to Staples and is like, make me a big binded one. <laughs> of course, when I try to go and have Staples print out dividers for my Marvel Legendary game, they're like, no, it's copyrighted. We can't print that, even if it says you can. Wow. Bastards. That sucks. I'll staple you. 